The phrase identity politics has come to be used as a sort of political insult. It's a shorthand way of accusing someone of pandering to voters based on race, religion, gender. From white nationalists and Donald Trump to the politics of liberation and demands for equal rights, conflicts between identity groups dominate our political discourse. It sometimes feels that everyone is playing the identity politics game these days. How did we get here? Is the rise of identity politics really that big a problem? Is it really that new? And if it is, what should we do about it? Welcome to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the big divides in our culture and our politics. It's presented by Matthew Taylor and by me, Ian Leslie. And in this episode, we're talking to Francis Fukuyama about identity. So this is our last episode of 2018, and it's a special one because of our guest, Francis Fukuyama, who is, of course, the author of The End of History, this seminal work that catapulted him to fame in the late 1980s and early 90s. His latest book is called Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. And it's a response to the two major political events, earthquakes of the last two years, the election of Donald Trump and the UK's vote to, to leave the EU. And as I understand it, Ian, it's not just, you haven't just read the book, but you've just left it in a coffee shop. So someone, you're, you're, you're disseminating this work uh, generously to the world. Yeah, I feel I, I, it was an act of unwitting generosity. So, so hopefully someone out there has, has picked up the book in a cafe and is now being blown away by the ideas in it. And, you know, before we speak to Francis Fukuyama, we're going to start this episode, as always, with a segment we call Full Disclosure, where we set out our preconceptions and and our starting points and our assumptions about the the theme that we're going to discuss. So, Matthew, when it comes to Fukuyama's work, including this book, what's your starting point? How do you think about it? Well, so one of the things about Fukuyama, of course, is this, that that he... uh, has this, and it must be a weight on his shoulders, actually, in a way, that he he, he is associated with one of the most uh, influential ideas of the last kind of 30 years, which is the idea of the end of history, uh, that liberal democracy had triumphed. Because no idea has been more commonly quoted by people in the last few years as a kind of preliminary to their account of the fact that everything's gone wrong. But in his defense, and this is what must make it galling for him that people talk about this idea so much, is actually the book was not as trite as that uh, hypothesis uh, suggests. And actually, Fukuyama's work is always really worth reading because I think you said the other day, Ian, when we were talking about Jonathan Haidt, that you you were slightly critical of the most recent book because he didn't put what was going on in American campuses in context. Fukuyama always puts things in context. He uh, gives them a, a place through a kind of historical panorama and he wants to take us back to some of the great philosophers when he talks about what's going on in the modern world. And actually, at the end of history, whilst he did talk about the what seemed to be the triumph of liberal democracy on the one hand and the market uh, economics uh, on, on the other... At the end of that book, he also recognizes that there is still a problem. And the problem is this, that people want something that he calls thymus from the the Greek, which is a notion of status, of reputation, which links to notions of identity. And so he, he says at the end of the book, well, this all seems to work. This system seems to be resilient, but still, how do we resolve the issue? Or how are we going to deal with the fact that everybody wants to be recognized? And, and how does that happen? And, 
And fascinatingly, in the book, he even refers to Donald Trump, and I'm going to ask him about this when we when we talk to him, and how it is that a figure like Donald Trump gets the kind of recognition that he clearly wants uh, in this world. He, he has a prediction. It turns out he was wrong about that. But the other thing is this. I've spoken a bit on these programs, Ian, about, about how I think we need to connect what's going on in the world to a kind of deeper existential question about how it is we live our lives. And I think Fukuyama does that in this book, Identity. Yeah, and he does it with enormous learning, obviously. He's incredibly inf- informed, uh, deeply knowledgeable about the history of, of political thought and, and philosophy. And he's a great storyteller. So he will he unfolds these kind of long intellectual narratives, really. And they're very, they kind of roll along and they're very persuasive. But I guess one of the questions I have is, you know, underneath the force of, of those stories, what does that obscure? And and is identity politics, is it really a new thing? Is it a radical break? He, he seems to suggest uh, at the start of the book. Um, or is it just that we've noticed that this is basically what politics has been about all along? That turn from identity being neutral or even positive to being negative, that's interesting. Yeah, my, my question is, has politics always been in some sense about who you are and, and sort of aligning yourself with, with certain groups, um, whether it's a group within your society or, or, or the country as a whole? And perhaps we've always imagined that it's just about rational debate and, and argument and discussion and debate and policy and things like that. And actually, that's really been only ever a, a secondary concern. Great. Well, I think that's enough Fukuyama foreplay. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's talk to the great man. Francis, I'd like to start by uh, talking about this idea of thymos, which is central to your book, which um, you define as the part of the soul that craves recognition of dignity, and the kind of twin concept of isothemia, the demand to be respected on an equal basis. And then uh, the third concept, mega, you're going to have to help me with this one, megalothemia. Is that right? Yeah, megalothemia. Yeah. <laughs> megalothemia, the demand to be recognized as uh, superior. Um, and the book is really all about how it is we kind of deal with these different ideas of recognition uh, and dignity. So how has it come about, do you think, that these concepts are so central to understanding our politics today? I think they're central because it's the part of human psychology that uh, actually drives a lot of people into politics Uh, It's the part that's really not recognized by modern economics, which is based on a model of human behavior that has, you know, rationality and material uh, desire, but not this desire for other people's approval of my internal worth. Uh, And that, I think, is actually very important to people because we're inherently social animals. The thing that makes it difficult to deal with is that it's not rational. It's really connected to some very deep emotions having to do with pride, shame, anger, uh, and the like. If you think about the nature of politics, it's really all about anger. It's about one person getting up and denouncing another person for saying the wrong thing or acting unjustly or uh, other things that, that you know have to do with judgments of, of relative uh, worth. And it's also very much connected to the whole modern idea of democracy because democracy really is based on a presumption of at least equal moral uh, worth of all of the citizens of a particular uh, society. Democracy came in the wake of highly 
uh, hierarchical societies in which some people were explicitly said to be better than other people, you know, aristocracies. And our presumption today is that people have an equal worth. And so much of our politics revolves around assertions that I am not being recognized, uh, I'm not being granted equal worth by my fellow citizens, by the power structures in the society, and so forth. And so that's, you know, that's a, a, a universal grounding, I think psychological grounding for uh, what we call identity politics today. And it seems to me that one, an irony here is that people who haven't actually read your book, The End of History, often cite you in terms of saying uh, kind of, well, this was the hubristic moment when we thought all problems were solved, everything's gone wrong since. But of course, actually in that book, for people who, who read it, it's a fantastic piece of work, you recognize yourself um, right at the end, I'm, I'm quoting you now, the danger exists that we will return to being first men engaged in bloody and pointless prestige battles. You even mention a Donald Trump in that context. So in a sense, you've always understood that there was a problem about however well society might appear to be functioning, this question of how it is that we met people's individual and group desire for for dignity and recognition. Well, that's right. So I think that democratic revolutions are based on this desire for equal dignity. If you think about Mohamed Bouazizi, the Tunisian vegetable seller that uh, had his cart confiscated and subsequently immolated himself in despair over his lack of recognition by the authoritarian government of Ben Ali, you can see that the demonstrations that followed, that toppled this dictatorship, were really about uh, wanting to live in a regime that recognized the basic humanity of its citizens. But I think the problem is that once you achieve that, once you live in a in a democracy that grants you rights, you know, right to speak, right to belief, right to participate, right to vote, it's not enough that people begin to take those rights for granted and then they begin to, and, and you know, it's, it's perfectly reasonable that, that they do this. They say, well, yeah, we're living in a society that's committed to equal rights, but I'm actually not being treated equally, uh, particularly if you're a member of a marginalized or, or discriminated against group. And that, I think, is what's led liberal societies, liberal democratic societies, into the kind of identity politics that they're experiencing today. So this question of, of how it is we got to this place, I, I just want to test out on you a, a way of thinking about this, which is based on the idea, which I think you can derive from anthropology, sociology, and psychology, that there are kind of three fundamental kind of hu ways of organizing human life or motivations for human beings. And the first is around authority uh, and expertise and leadership and all that kind of stuff. The second is around some notion of self-interest, self-development, autonomy, psychologists would refer to it. And the third is a kind of connectedness instinct. And then in a sense, that connectedness instinct, you might call it solidarity, that the system that people defer, some people refer to as neoliberalism is basically a system in which there is a deal between the state and the market, between hierarchy and individualism. And, and the deal is the role of the state is to maximize the scope for markets to, to, to perform their magic. And in return, the economy will grow and states will have some money which they can use to ameliorate some of the effects of market economies. 
But what's missing from that kind of neoliberal structure is respect for this kind of solidaristic element. And so, in a sense, you then get a left and right critique of the world. You have a left critique which says we've forgotten universalism, we've forgotten equality, society is terrible and equal, we've forgotten the dignity of those who are oppressed. But then you also get a, a right of centre critique of the same thing, which is anti-globalization, which is we've forgotten the nation, we've forgotten the tribe, we've lost respect for our traditions and for cohesion. And so that politics now feels like a fight between a left and right critique of, of, of that system, which you were describing uh, uh, in, the, in, in the late 80s and early 90s. Do you, is that a kind of account which you recognize? Oh, yeah, no, definitely. And in fact, I you know, I, I talked about that in the in the book, you know, The End of History and the Last Man, that, you know, liberal societies are based on recognition of individuals. And in many ways, the theoretical premise was that we all had these deep selves that were being suppressed by society and really wanted to come out. And on the economic sphere, it, you know, really emphasized in, in, in many ways individual self-interest. But in neither of those understandings of, of human nature was there room for the need for solidarity. Human beings are just born as social animals. You know, they obviously have individual interests, um, but they uh, also have these very, very deep emotional ties that drive them into society. And I think one of the things that a liberal society that produces peace and prosperity doesn't give you is precisely that feeling of community, of relatedness to people. And in fact, individualism is prized by liberals, but it leads to a society in which you have excessive individualism, in which the ties of family, of neighborhood, of other forms of community have atrophied and they're sacrificed at the altar of maximizing individual self-interest. So Yes, I think this is a problem with, you know, the, the fundamental, um, well, I shouldn't say the fundamental liberal conception because I think a lot of serious liberal thinkers, you know, like Alexis de Tocqueville have understood that this is a problem and that people need these these sorts of ties and have argued for a, a moderated form of liberalism that gave some space for this communal instinct that people had. But certainly, I think in the 19... Uh, especially in the decade following the collapse of communism, you know, you had a form of neoliberalism that was very ideological and and pushed a very, very stark uh, kind of agenda. And that did provoke, I think, the critiques from both the left and the right that you're seeing today. So I've been closely involved in, in politics through most of my life, I worked for, for Tony Blair, worked for the Labour Party. And I was involved in election campaigns. And those election campaigns were hierarchical or individualistic in the sense that they were about which government will be the most efficient and effective, the technocratic kind of argument, and which government's going to leave you with the most money in your pocketbook, which is a kind of individualistic argument. Now we have a politics steeped in solidarity. And it seems to me that whilst we would agree, I think, that it is important to recognise bonds and connectedness and membership and belonging. The problem with a, a, an overly solidaristic politics is that it, it has certain characteristics. Yeah, first of all, it's about groups. And when we talk about a group, there's an in-group and there's an out-group. So that is an issue. Secondly, it's a politics very steeped in morality. So it's not just a politics about whether or not my judgment is right or your judgment is right, or even about balancing interest. It becomes a, an argument about who is morally right. And that 
that's very difficult to resolve. If we start from a point of view of, of arguing that that each other is kind of morally wrong, that that is quite intractable. And then thirdly, it's quite a vis- this is a visceral politics. It's a politics of feeling as much as it is of of reason. So this is why this moment feels so I- I- intractable. Would you would you agree with that? Uh, I think that communal politics takes on that character. Yes, that's right. But it all revolves around what kind of community are you promoting? Uh, so, and, and, and there are uh, communities that are, you know, healthy and that cultivate human flourishing, and there's others that promote aggression and, and, and conflict. Uh, so, for example, I argue that a lot of modern democracies need a stronger sense of national identity, that they're becoming fractionated according to identity groups or polarized, you know, between, you know, major polls like Remainers or Leavers or red and blue states, and that what they need actually is a greater sense of common identity that will allow them to disagree over policy issues but still feel an emotional attachment to the unit that actually is the democratic decision-making unit, which for, you know, all of the supranationalism in the world remains the nation-state. If you have the right conception of a national identity, uh, it can be integrative, but it does not necessarily have to be discriminatory. Now, this is one of the sore points that a lot of people simply cannot dissociate national identity from a kind of old-fashioned ethno-nationalism that's exclusive and discriminatory and aggressive. But in fact, I, I don't I don't think you can have a, a successful political system without something like national identity. And given the de facto diversity of modern societies, you know, that national identity can't really be based any longer on ethnicity or religion or, you know, one of the other traditional ways of defining it. It has to be based on something different. I... I agree with you um i just wonder how to inculcate or re-inculcate that spirit of uh i'm going well, to call it patriotism um uh what you're calling national identity particularly uh we can talk about britain too but just thinking about the us first obama rose to fame before he was president with this fantastic speech about how american people don't want to recognize themselves as living in blue states and red states and how actually it doesn't matter if you're you're gay or straight man or woman republican or democrat you all want to believe in 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 the flag and and in a kind of in in the unity of the nation and you know get, get to the end of the of his two terms and the nation feels more bitterly divided than ever and you know and he was a great um, advocate and a great storyteller for for that vision of a diverse, uh, uh, multicultural but essentially united nation. Um, and he's uh, and but on on his own terms, the country went went backwards in during the eight years he was in power. So, what's going on there? And, and is there really anything that that you can do about that? Well, no, you're right that uh, I think that the country ended up uh, more polarized after his eight years. I guess uh, it also depends on the particular historical moment because, you know, he governed right in the wake of the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression. There was a lot of economic disruption. A lot of people lost their homes, their jobs. 
Uh, so there's a lot of objective basis for anger at that moment. And I think sometimes the uh, salience of an appeal for something like national unity really depends on an external shock or an external sense that, you know, we really are in this together. There's a brief moment uh, after September 11th when, you know, the American nation felt like it was quite unified because it had been attacked by this very, you know, strange and, and, and hostile terrorist group. So I, I think, unfortunately, Obama may have come at the wrong moment. But I, I don't think that that means that in the future it would not be possible to have a leader that uh, did rise above the, the polarization and, and did make a case for greater uh, unity. I, I'm not I'm totally convinced by that because I, it, it seems that what, what you're saying is it took an act of war for, for, for America to feel unified. And then even then, it didn't last very long. And you, in a sense, you could argue that, that bin Laden and al-Qaeda were right in their analysis of American democracy at, at the time, that even though their network was, was uh, almost uh, eradicated and bin Laden was shot and so it looked like some sort of a America had come together and, and triumphed over, over the enemy. Of course, you know, now, whatever it is, 15 years or more later, they were right to foresee the fact that America would, would splinter, partly as, as a result of, of what they did. So I, I, I'm not sure, I, I don't think it was just a question of bad luck that Obama just came, came at the wrong time. Um, it seems like there are kind of deeper uh, forces at work kind of pushing Americans apart and that, that they can't just be brought together by talk of, you know, everybody under the, the same constitution. Uh, well, that's, um, it's a, <laughs> there's no question it's a big challenge. But I think if you look at American history, there have been periods when we've been equally polarized and yet uh, you did uh, recover from that. I mean, the, you know, the, the worst case of that was obviously the Civil War where you actually had 600,000 Americans uh, killed as a result of an irresolvable political conflict. Yeah, that was pretty bad polarization. <laughs> that was pretty bad. That was pretty bad <laughs> yeah. polarization. And after the uh, after the conflict, you know, the South was deeply, deeply resentful, and it really took another hundred years, in a in a sense. And and I would say, actually, a, a lot of those wounds still haven't been completely healed. But you know, if historians looking back at that period, I think do believe that you know the right kind of leadership could mitigate some of that. Uh, I think a lot of people felt that Lincoln's assassination was in a sense a big historical tragedy because uh, he had the sense that you really needed to reintegrate the South and rebind the nation and that once he was gone, you had the more radical Reconstructionists take over that increased the resentment of Southerners and then led to their reintegration on terms of segregation and Jim Crow and so forth. I would also say that there are certain symbolic acts that did help to mitigate that situation. And one of them was actually done by Lincoln before he was assassinated, which was to create the holiday of Thanksgiving, which to this day, I think, remains one of the most unifying rituals that Americans grow through. And, and there's other things like, you know, the invention of baseball. The sport was actually deliberately promoted as a way of healing that north-south divide by giving Americans a common pastime and something else to think about. So, you know, I'm not saying that any of this, you know, will necessarily work in the, in the present context, but I don't think it's good for us to think that these structural forces are just inevitable, that there's not, 
you know, any room for individual leadership or, or political agency where you can push back against uh, some of the things that are driving us apart. Can I, um, Francis, can we turn to some questions about what it is we might do about this moment? And uh, I think here the conversation about how it is we uh, bring more balance to our political discourse, how we deal with this kind of overly solidaristic identity-based politics is also linked to pessimism about democracy. The issue now is not so much what is, is partly what's driving us apart, it's also the weakening of those things that that brought us together. And we've talked to a lot of people around these kinds of issues. This, this kind of ideas, I'll, I'll give you two or three of the ideas that I've that have come up quite a lot. So one is around kind of education, that somehow our education system needs to be better at getting young people to engage with complexity. Jonathan Haidt was talking about social science, philosophy, ways of, of, of having conversations, discussions, debates. So that's, do, are we educating young people to be able to cope with complexity and, and, and disagreement? Another set of ideas around democratic reform. Do we need a more deliberative democracy? Are there, you know, are there structural problems of representative democracy, which means it doesn't really fit the modern world? And then the third category of issues is social media. Do we just simply need to regulate social media better? Because social media does seem to absolutely be a kind of ground, feeding ground for this kind of identity. But I'm interested in what you think of those ideas and whether you have your own notions of how it is we might reverse what seems to be a tide going in the wrong direction. Well, I think all of those are plausible candidates. So in in my book, I I say that we do need better uh, civic education, which has really uh, disappeared from American high school curricula, uh, where students, you know, minority of students know what the three branches of government are, can name even one of the rights in the, in the Bill of Rights, that sort of thing. In a sense, however, the existing polarization makes that agenda very difficult because I think if we all decided we needed better civic education, we'd still be deadlocked over what that content should be. Nonetheless, I think that's something that, um, uh, that we can work on. Maybe using, maybe using a deliberative process. Maybe using, yeah. On the institutional reform side, I actually think that, you know, uh, Britain and the United States uh, share this first-past-the-post electoral system that tends to lead to a two-party system. And I think that that in itself has contributed to polarization because the incentives for both of the parties in the United States right now is to move towards their extremes. And if you had something like the Australian ranked choice voting or lim- limited preferential vote where you could actually rank candidates, it would be much easier to have a centrist third party emerge. I think in terms of social media, yes, I think that regulation is appropriate. There, you know, there's another route, though, that, that you didn't mention, which really has to do with, I, I guess, looking at the underlying sociology of, of, of the moment. So, you basically have this division. This is absolutely true in both Britain and the United States, where the more liberal voters are all tend to be younger, better educated, and they live in cities where they benefit from globalization. Uh, the backlash voters are older; they tend to be more rural, uh, you know, less educated. We've seen that in France. At the, certainly, seeing that in France at the moment, where yeah. that is a real periphery versus the cities. Yeah, and they, they also tend to be they also tend to be white. I mean, this is a big role for race and ethnicity. Yeah, so ra- race is 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 also an element of that. I think that's really the division between populists and 
liberals, you know, throughout, uh, you know, in Turkey and Russia and Hungary and in, in a lot of different places. But part of, um, I think, this the appropriate response is actually to understand why people are voting for those uh, populist parties. And, you know, I think part of the answer is some of them are just racist and, and xenophobic, but part of the answer is a lot of them are genuinely uh, not being recognized by the political system, by the popular culture, and they genuinely do feel ignored and left out. And I think some attention to that might ease or at least break away some of that populist vote. Part of that, I think, has to do with adjustments in immigration policy. Part of it just has to do with you know, recognizing this lack of recognition as, as one of the things that's driving uh, the populist anger. So to, to kind of finish our conversation, Francis, I, in your book and in what you've said, and I completely agree with this, there's a kind, in a sense, the, the, what you're encouraging is a, is a kind of deeper philosophical awareness of the kind of challenges of the human condition, of, uh, of the way, way we have to manage our individual desires and the need for societies to cohere and to be able to get on with each other, plus a set of policy suggestions, but they're, but they're subtle, thoughtful, nuanced policy suggestions. But the problem is, given what you what we know about identity politics and where politics is right now, it seems that the notion that we will be able to become kind of more philosophical on the one hand and more capable of generating intelligent, balanced policy, that seems a long way away. So I, I kind of have to end by asking, do you, are you an optimist about where we are? <laughs> uh, you know, I think that, um, yeah, I guess I do still remain uh, moderately optimistic um, if you look at the recent midterm election in the United States, you know, uh, it took a while for this to sink in, but the Democrats really did extremely well. They flipped 40 seats in the House of Representatives, and they basically swept all of these suburban districts with middle-class, better-educated voters, particularly female voters. A lot of people really do not like Donald Trump, uh, and, and they're, you know, they're reacting to that. Uh, in the recent German elections, it's true that the Christian Democrats did not do well, but it wasn't the AFD, the, the right-wing party, that was necessarily gaining. You know, there was a generalized discontent with the elite parties, but, you know, the Greens also increased their vote share. And so it's it's just not clear to me that we're slipping inevitably into this world of uh, out-of-control identity politics. That, uh, And I think the main way that you fight back is actually by voting. Uh, I think that, you know, with some decisive defeats of these populists uh, as a result of failed policies, uh, I think that, you know, that's the route towards an eventual recovery of the system. Francis Fukuyama, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for talking to me. Francis Fukuyama's new book, Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment, is out now. And it's a very good read. Uh, but if you go to a coffee shop somewhere in central London, it might, you might be able to <laughs> get, get it for free. You get one for free, yeah, exactly. So, Ian, uh, what did you think of what the great man had to say? 
Well, he is fascinating, um, as you would expect, and, and uh, deeply thoughtful and interesting. Um, I'm uh, less of an optimist than than he is, at least as far as... I got the sense the, he feels he has to be optimistic. It's almost his civic duty to be optimistic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not yeah. sure. No, I think that's true. But then really his, his duty is as a... It's as a thinker, surely, right? So, um, but uh, you know, it's 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 hard to see that that just because you know Trump didn't do well in the midterms, um, that 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 America's going to come back together on, under a more unifying uh, leader. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't really convinced by his point. You know, Obama had 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 bad timing. I I think that if you look at not just America but countries across. Europe, um, he's right that it's not always the it's not always the far right that that does well, although they are doing pretty pretty damn well. Um, uh, but what you are seeing is fragmentation, um, political fragmentation, yeah. less so in this country, only because we've got a, quite a, a a a system that's very hard to fragment. Yeah, I was tempted when he talked about electoral reform as being a way forward to ask him about Italy, you know, which is you know has a highly yeah. proportionate system and is a complete. So they're all yeah, totally they're fragmented. all they're all kind of splitting into in, into groups that are aligned a lot of them to to identity um, in some way, and I don't know. I, I'm an optimist by nature, but I I, I can't really kind of. Uh, it's not easy to see um, the, the the way out of that. How these countries can uh, reignite the flame of of uh, you know national uh, sentiment in which we're we're all in this together, even though we're we're different. Well, I think in our next program we're going to be talking to uh, some uh, Germans who've been doing some quite practical things to try to rebuild kind of civic cohesion. But uh, by the time uh, people hear that, we'll have gone through Christmas. Now, one of the things I've said a couple of times on this program is that we should spend time, more time, uh, with people that we like but who disagree with us. Ian, at Christmas, will you be spending time with people that you like, with uh, that you disagree with, or is your yeah, I'll be is your spending Christmas time with a... my family? So you know, of course. Uh, <laughs> but are you? Will it be an entirely liberal Christmas that you're having? Yeah, probably will. I mean, I um, uh, I'm trying to think if I'll be seeing anybody. I don't. I I really do live in a liberal bubble, right? I mean, it's true what 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 people say about people like me, and in a sense, like this is why I think the the debate around social media is interesting because people talk about the filter bubble. Actually, there's very little evidence uh, that there is a real filter bubble on on social media, and that there's, there's some evidence that people are exposed to a much wider range of views than than they would be otherwise. Right? I grew up in a filter bubble because we only watched the BBC News and we bought the Guardian. My parents bought the Guardian every day. Right? That's a real filter bubble. Whereas now, the the answer to you know the, this is a long answer to your question, but the, I'll be arguing with people on 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 Twitter, hopefully nicely and and politely. But but that's where I get disagreement, um, including with people who come from a very different part of the political spectrum. Well, please don't tweet on Christmas Day, Ian. I'll try not to. My brother-in-law will be coming to stay with us at Christmas, and he is a member of the Countryside Alliance. Uh, he's a former, ah. a former military uh, nurse. And so he, no, he does have he had, does have different views, and he's also got like a north south centre periphery thing going on because he he wants to bring his dog, and we were looking for a hotel, and we can't find a hotel in London for 
dogs and he, he got quite angry about that. He said, that's typical of the North-South divide. In the North, any hotel would take a dog, but in the <laughs> South... Now, that's it's a new theory on me, uh, and that's a new dimension of polarisation. Our, yeah, our tolerance of dogs in public spaces. Maybe that's something we can get to into in some time in 2019. So, uh, to all of you listening, uh, have a wonderful uh, Christmas and a happy new year. Thank you for listening. Uh, do please carry on listening, and also recommend Polarised uh, to your um, friends. Subscribe to it. Polarised was presented by me, Matthew Taylor, and Ian Leslie. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA. Thank you.